Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 60, Falkenhayn's Folly. By the late summer of 1916, the war in Europe had swelled to a level of violence not seen since its opening month. The titanic struggles at Verdun and on the Somme continued to rage like an industrial Moloch, while high up in the mountains, the Italians and Austrians engaged one another across the jagged alpine cliffs. In Galicia, the Russian steamroller under Brusilov had barged its way 80 kilometers west, leaving the Austrian fortifications a smoldering ruin. For the first time since August 1914, the belligerents had focused their efforts back to the continent, and the Central Powers were besieged by the combined Allied offensives. Convention dictated that Germany and her allies would not be able to hold out much longer. But then, on August the 27th, 1916, a glimmer of hope. Romania had declared war. Last episode, we discussed the backstory of Romania's entry into the Great War. The Premier, Iwan Bradiano, had secured a sweetheart deal from the Entente, who at the behest of the French and Russians, felt Romania's entry would tip the balance in their favor. The Treaty of Bucharest, signed on August the 17th, promised Romania's rights to Hungarian Transylvania, Bukovina, and the Banat. In addition, the Russians vowed to continue their push into Galicia, while an Allied attack from Salonika would tie up the Bulgarians in the south. But, as we saw at the end of the last episode, things did not turn out as planned. Brusilov's push on Koval failed to make inroads while an attempt by the Russian 9th Army to cross the Carpathians ended in failure. At Salonika, it was the Bulgarians who struck first, sealing off bridges and railroads, which forced the Allies back to the coast. Despite spending the last 20 months waiting for the right moment, Bradiano found himself leading Romania to war at the most inopportune time. The plan was for Romania to declare war on the Habsburgs only, but she soon found herself at war with not only Austria-Hungary, but also Germany, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire. Although Bradiano had gotten what he wanted from the Treaty of Bucharest, he had bitten off more than he could handle. The developments in Galicia and Macedonia caused considerable alarm in Bucharest. On August the 27th, Bradiano called a crown council where the terms of the treaty were announced publicly for the first time. Some conservative factions were aghast, but there was general approval, although Bradiano admitted that despite all his planning and caution, the current situation meant he could no longer guarantee success. Outside on the streets of Bucharest, however, the mood was much more somber. The declaration of war had been sent to Vienna at 9 o'clock that evening, and within the hour, the news had become public. Church bells were rung but the celebratory crowds paled to those of August 1914. Although many Romanians favored intervention, the reality that they were finally at war was difficult to comprehend. Many harbored distrust of the Russians, while others doubted that Germany was as weak as they were led to believe. Late night on August the 28th, a German Zeppelin appeared over Bucharest. Its bombs did minimal damage, but the presence of the massive, unyielding airship, whose engines emitted a continuous drone like some giant destructive insect, was a psychological terror for the Romanian people. War enthusiasm evaporated, and in the morning, the streets were empty. 
Upon mobilization, the Romanian army fielded 23 divisions, divided among four armies. On August the 29th, the Romanian war plan, codenamed Hypothesis Z, was put into action. Hypothesis Z was the brainchild of the Romanian chief of staff, General Vasily Zatu. General Zatu was widely disliked. A corrupt, anachronistic leader, Zatu's work on Hypothesis Z has been widely ridiculed by historians, and with good reason. Besides the inappropriate name, Hypothesis Z was deeply flawed. It did not take into account a hostile Bulgaria, and even worse, had been designed in the event of war with Russia. This rather key distinction remained unchanged right up until the day of mobilization. Staff officers with fewer than 24 hours notice had to scramble to make amendments, crossing out towns and landmarks and scribbling the names of new ones into the margins. Given that Romania's survival depended on a quick mobilization, you could argue that things were not off to a very good start. Put into broad strokes, Hypothesis Z called for three Romanian armies, Group North, consisting of 1st and 2nd armies, plus the Romanian 4th army, to occupy most of eastern Hungary, overrunning Transylvania and advancing as far as the Muresh River, towards the Transylvanian capital, whose name I'm about to horribly mispronounce, Cluj-Napoca. The invasion force would consist of 420,000 soldiers, or 75% of Romania's total field strength. Meanwhile, 3rd Army's 75,000 troops were to stay in the interior and guard the Jabruja Basin, just in case the Bulgarians crossed the Danube from the south. The plan was to have all of Transylvania overrun within 40 days of mobilization, hence why most of the army was being deployed in the region. However cautious Bradiano had been to secure the best political conditions for Romania, he soon discovered his talents at the negotiating table did not extend to the battlefield. Hypothesis Z was contingent on the element of surprise. Bradiano had assumed that when Hypothesis Z was executed, the Central Powers would be exhausted from the ongoing Allied offensives. General Zatu's latest estimates put the number of Habsburg defenders in Transylvania at 74,000 men, a number largely composed of reservists, police, and customs officials. Expecting that his armies would outnumber the Austrians by a staggering 10 to 1, Zatu failed to consider other options. Romania's performance in the Second Balkan War had given the army an inflated sense of self-confidence. Romania's new enemies had been at war for two years. Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire had lost territory to Bucharest in the summer of 1913, and both seethed at the opportunity to avenge the humiliation. Bradiano was not surprised by their responses, but had he gauged the mood of Berlin, he would have been horrified to discover the Germans were not talking about revenge, but the outright obliteration of the entire kingdom. To understand what was happening in Germany, we need to back up to August the 19th. At around 3.30 in the morning, a Russian freighter had been caught trying to navigate a Turkish minefield in the Black Sea. Upon inspection, it was revealed the freighter was hauling an armament shipment bound for Constanza, a deep water port on the Romanian coast. The Turkish fleet passed this information on to Vienna, and in the morning of August the 20th, Conrad relayed it on to Berlin and General Falkenhayn. 
Falkenhayn was at the Kaiser's military headquarters in Pless, a castle located in German-controlled Silesia, when he received word of the discovery, and was naturally skeptical of the Austrian account. Although Vienna had been tracking Bradiato's movements through their agents in Rome, Falkenhayn did not feel the freighter incident was proof of Romania's duplicity. As we discussed last episode, the largely agrarian country was in the midst of her harvest, where nearly two-thirds of her army was decommissioned and sent home. In Falkenhayn's estimation, Romania would not be ready to join the war until the harvest was complete, which usually ran until October at the earliest. When Falkenhayn met with Kaiser Wilhelm on August the 27th, the question was not if Romania joined the war, but when. The Central Powers shared no illusions over Romanian loyalty. Since the death of King Carol, the final thread connecting Berlin to Bucharest had been severed, and with the largely Francophile population and pro-Entente monarchy, the Central Powers knew it was only a matter of time before she joined the Allied coalition. Although he doubted Romania would risk declaring war before the harvest, Falkenhayn had been preparing just in case. Railroads were being extended into South Hungary and northern Bulgaria. In June, August von Mackensen, the successful German general who spearheaded the breakthrough at Gorlitzi Tarnov, received orders that upon mobilization, he was to create a new army called the Army of the Danube and station this force along the Romanian border. In addition, the 101st German Infantry Division, which had spent the last year in Bulgaria, was likewise dispatched to the Danube frontier. But all of this paled in comparison to what happened on August the 5th. For the first time in the war, representatives from the Central Powers met to discuss the Romanian threat. The Germans, Austrians, Bulgarians, and Ottoman Turks were in a room together for the very first time. Historians have labeled this meeting the Central Powers Committee, but in reality, it was less of a committee and more of a straight lecture, with the Germans telling everyone how things were about to go down. The committee completed its goal by putting the four allies on the same page. They agreed that Romania's main effort would be against Transylvania. This had been confirmed through Habsburg agents and loose-lipped Romanian officers. To counter the half-million Romanian troops, it was agreed that each of the Central Powers were to contribute a handful of divisions, which would be dispersed in Transylvania and folded under Mackensen's Army of the Danube. By mid-August, the Central Powers had formed three separate armies to contain any threat from Bucharest, Mackensen's Army of the Danube along the southern border, and the 1st and 9th Armies in Transylvania and Bukovina. The Central Powers had a plan and whenever Romania declared her intention, they would not be caught by surprise. During his afternoon meeting with the Kaiser on August the 27th, Falkenhayn was able to boast about his level of preparedness. When pressed about the rumors coming from Bucharest, Falkenhayn curtly dismissed the threat as Allied propaganda, going so far as to accuse Vienna of falsifying information to get more support. The Austrians, you see, had run into another bout of bad luck. Not only had they been hammered in Galicia, but they were once again facing immense pressure from the Italians. Having stalled Conrad's Straff expedition in the wake of Bruslav's attack, Rome was looking to deal the Austrians a fatal blow, and General Cadorna was eager to oblige. Owing to shorter supply routes, 
Cardona was able to shift his reserves back to the Isonzo front, when on August the 6th, the Italian 1st Army launched a major counterattack against the Gorizia Plateau. The 6th Battle of the Isonzo lasted until August the 17th, and was the most successful Italian effort of the year. The Italians reclaimed the three villages crowning the rocky plateau, leaving the Austrians badly outnumbered. Falkenhayn, however, assured the Kaiser this was a non-issue, arguing that events on the Italian front played no role in Bucharest's decision-making. In any event, he concluded all preparations against Romania would be complete when she joined the war. However, Falkenhayn's calculations were wrong. Since he did not think Romania would declare war until after the harvest, he assured Wilhelm they still had months to prepare. Essentially, he was telling the Kaiser, not a big deal, we have it under control. Had Falkenhayn known this was to be his last in-person meeting with the Kaiser, perhaps he would have treaded a bit more carefully. What happened next is perhaps a bit of apocryphal hyperbole. Colonel Max Hermann Bauer, an expert on artillery, engineering, and chemistry in the operations sections of the German general staff, tells us how the Kaiser learned about Romania's declaration of war. Although Bauer's account appears in numerous books, it should be noted that Bauer was a noted gossiper and political meddler, so it is possible he exaggerated his account for dramatic effect. Just moments before Romania declared war on Austria-Hungary, Colonel Bauer was at Pless, walking the castle grounds with a colleague when they happened upon the Kaiser, who was passing by with his entourage. In Bauer's testimony, the Kaiser was calm and cheerful, and told Bauer that he had just spoken with Falkenhayn, who assured him that Romania would not declare war until October at the earliest. Not wanting to disrupt the Kaiser's mood, Bauer continued on his way. It was not until after Bauer returned to his office, some one hour after speaking with Wilhelm, that Bauer learned of Romania's declaration. Bauer, who had only been gone a couple of hours, realized how lucky he had been. The Kaiser must not have known when they met in the castle courtyard. Having just been assured by Falkenhayn there was no threat from Romania, Bauer was glad to have been far away when Wilhelm learned the news. That evening, leaflets dropped by French airmen showered the German trenches on the Somme. German soldiers, they read, Romania, which was once allied to the Central Powers, has declared itself for our side. It has just declared war on Austria-Hungary. Besides dramatically increasing the supply of toilet paper, the news had little effect on the men defending the front line. But as the leaflets tumbled toward the earth, Calls for Falkenhayn's head were flooding in from Berlin and Vienna. On August the 20th, Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria composed a letter to the military cabinet, which he stated the army no longer had confidence in Falkenhayn, and that the present situation could not be allowed to continue. Conveniently, this note found its way to the Kaiser just after Romania's declaration of war. Although Romania had been careful not to declare war on Germany, this distinction failed to impress upon Wilhelm, who flew into a rage. In his typical hyperbole, he seethed at the betrayal, vowing to erase Romania from the map as quickly as possible. Germany declared war on Romania in response, soon followed by Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire. 
The entry of Romania marked the end of Falkenhayn's tenure as chief of the general staff. On August the 28th, he received word that the Kaiser had summoned Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff for a personal consolation about the new military situation. This deliberate breach of Falkenhayn's authority was a clear indication of where the wind was blowing. Knowing there was no hope of reconciliation, Falkenhayn requested he be removed from his post. In the early morning of August the 29th, his request was granted. Erich von Falkenhayn commanded the German army for 714 days, from September 14, 1914, to August the 29th, 1916. He took over when Germany's hope for a quick victory lay in disarray. The vantage Schlieffen plan had failed, and faced with a two-front war, few tacticians would have been able to handle the enormous responsibility which he inherited. Offering a nuanced view of Falkenhayn's command is difficult. The horrors he unleashed at Verdun in February 1916 solidified his place as one of the Great War's most ruthless generals, and it was his leadership which saw Germany raise the level of violence to new heights. He advocated the bombardment of civilians from the air, unrestricted submarine warfare, and the use of poison gas, all of which took place during his time as chief of the general staff. But that said, Falkenhayn deserves credit for being one of the most intelligent and pragmatic thinkers in the German army. He recognized earlier than most other German generals that the Central Powers simply lacked the manpower and resources to win a war of attrition against the Allies. Thus, he broke with a German way of war that called for the annihilation of the enemy, instead advocating for the destruction of enemy field armies as a prerequisite to the achievement of war aims through diplomacy. Thus, Falkenhayn's plans to win the war at Verdun were hatched. Based on information gathered over the past two years, Falkenhayn concluded that France would face a manpower crisis by September 1916, if her current rate of loss mirrored those of 1914-1915. In this, Falkenhayn saw Germany's salvation. If Germany could not win a long-term war of attrition against the Allied coalition, then perhaps she could win a short-term war against France alone. The only way to do this was to mount an attack of unprecedented strength at Verdun, which France would only be able to withstand by expending so much of her manpower that she would destroy herself. In the words of historian Isabel Hall, it was a cold, self-wasting calculation that would require the deliberate sacrifices of hundreds of thousands of German troops. In a war in which so many of its players are accused of being unimaginative or anachronistic, Falkenhayn had come up with something truly original, however sinister and macabre it may have been. Just as Schlieffen had hoped to sweep up the Anglo-French forces behind Paris, Falkenhayn considered it advantageous if the British were sucked into the Verdun grinder as well. By detaching France from the Entente, Falkenhayn expected England and Russia to fall as well. The problem was that his strategy was the stuff of fantasy, arbitrary and uncompromising. Millions of men were fed into the grinder, in the hope that somehow the Germans would have the last man standing, and this would have been impossible to achieve even in the most ideal conditions. Falkenhayn staked all on a favorable exchange rate, yet early returns from the battle proved losses were equally shared. Still, Falkenhayn was committed, unable or unwilling, 
to see that his strategy of attrition was bleeding the German army as much as the French. It was Falkenheim's obsession with Verdun which proved his undoing. His failure to disclose his plans with Conrad was a fundamental error. Had the two men coordinated their plans as they had in 1915, the odds would have shifted considerably. Despite repeated warnings from Ruprecht in the west and Ludendorff in the east, Falkenheim refused to scale back operations until it was too late. His enemies could only stare in horror as the Allies were allowed to launch their assaults without so much as a preemptive strike. To his enemies, Falkenheim was as deep in the Muzmuk as his army, and when Romania declared war some two months before Falkenheim predicted, he lost the confidence of the Kaiser. On August the 29th, the crime of Verdun, as Falkenheim's opponents put it, was finally avenged. Falkenheim was replaced by Field Marshal Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff, titans of the Prussian war machine whose shadows would loom over the next two decades. The new command duo acted quickly. On September 2nd, all pending offensives at Verdun were cancelled, and the lines henceforth were to be regarded as permanent. From a German perspective, the battle along the Meuse was over. Hindenburg and Ludendorff did not have time to acclimatize to their new surroundings. In fact, Hindenburg wrote later that he did not expect to be appointed, having arrived at Pless with little more than an overnight bag and a few personal items. The entry of Romania, however, changed everything. A 645-kilometer front had been opened, and time was of the essence. Here, Hindenburg and Ludendorff benefited from Falkenhayn's groundwork. The Central Powers Committee clicked into action. Mackensen took command of the Army of the Danube and began preparations for the invasion of Jabruja. Meanwhile, the Austrian First Army, under Art Strassenberg, was reinforced by six divisions. The problem was that Ninth Army, positioned on the north side of the Carpathian Mountains, was still without a leader. In an ironic twist not lost on anyone, Ludendorff appointed Falkenhayn, thus giving him the opportunity to redeem his reputation in the field. Falkenhayn departed Berlin the following day. He left the station alone, with no one from his staff having bothered to see him off. After two years as the most powerful man in the German army, Erich von Falkenhayn boarded a train destined for some hamlet in the Transylvanian Alps. Next week, the Romanian campaign will officially begin. Paul von Hindenburg had promised the Kaiser a punitive expedition, and that is exactly what would unfold. Let us rejoice, Hindenburg wrote, that we will once more have an adversary that is not mired down in trench warfare. I do not know today where and how we will defeat him, but I assure you that we will defeat them. These were not hollow words. Surrounded on all sides, the Romanian army stood little chance against the combined might of the Central Powers. Attacked on three fronts, her only hope was to parry each blow rained against her. Powerless to help, the Allies could only watch, as their great hope was slowly overrun. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. 
Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. I would like to thank our most recent donors, Mark Whedon and Kenneth Vinson. Thank you very much for your kind contributions, guys. If you are interested in making a donation, be sure to hit the donate button on the right side of the homepage. All donations go to keep this show running, as I'm constantly on the hunt for the most recent and up-to-date research, which can be quite expensive, so any and all help is greatly appreciated. Another way to help the show is to rate us 5 stars on iTunes. iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will ensure I stay tethered to my laptop and continue working on new episodes. This has been episode 60 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.